My guest this week directed one of the most popular and profitable movies of all time, 1978's Grease. His filmography is full of box office and fan favorites, such as Blue Lagoon, Flight of the Navigator, Big Top Pee Wee, Honey, I Blew Up the Kid. His new book, Drawing Directors, Volume 1, is a collection of his drawings of directors done without their knowledge. It is my pleasure to talk to Mr. Randall Kleiser. Hello there. Hello. So I want to talk about the book first, if you don't mind. Sure. Have you always been drawing people? Well, um, yeah. I mean, I started out when my parents used to take me to church, and I would be sitting there bored, and I started drawing the choir. And <laughs> that's where I got started. Uh, and uh, I used this technique that I learned in art school called blind contour drawing, where you you uh, put your eye and your and your pen together and move them at the same time without looking down and try to draw something that looks somewhat like uh, the person that you're drawing. And that's where I started. When you would meet with these directors or you'd be having lunch with them or whatever, they wouldn't know what you were doing. They would think you were taking notes. Well, yeah, or, or it would be like I'd be in the front row of a Q&A or I'd be at a party across the room or, you know, uh, these are all people that I admire and whose movies that I love or, or that I know, I know personally. But um, I just, you know, I never asked anybody to sit there while I draw, drew them. I, I just did it when I had a chance. Is there a favorite one that you have in your book? One you think captures the person the best? I think Paul Greengrass is really cool because it's, it's kind of surreal. Also, I think Quentin Tarantino, those two guys, I really I, I, I had the fewest number of lines. You know, and when you can get the essence of somebody in the fewest number of lines, that's, that's pretty cool. I saw in your picture of, Rich, of Robert Altman because each picture has a story ne next to it. That's right. I mean, I write about either the movies that I've seen of theirs or my personal interaction with them um, or their advice to other filmmakers because uh, a lot of them, well, all directors are always asked, well, how can I get into it? How can I get my career started? What's your advice? And and many of these directors gave good advice. So that, I tried to, you know, get that across too. And um, so for example, for the Robert Altman, I read, that you used some of what he did on McCabe and Mrs. Miller in your White Fang. That's right, yeah. I mean, a lot of times I'm inspired by things that these other directors do. And, uh, you know, like, that's a good example. There's also, I'm thinking Spike Lee had some really good advice. Let me see if I can find it here in the book. Um, because I, I was impressed. He used to teach at, at um, New York Film, New York Films, NYU. <laughs> And why he was a teacher there. And uh, he, his, some of the things he said were, love what you do, don't be lazy, perfect your craft, express yourself, make a way, believe in your work, follow your passion, write and defend your work. That's a lot of advice from one guy. And do you think that directors take from other directors an homage, not? Yeah. And well, there, there's nothing new. Everybody's recycling. Oh, uh, things that were done before, you know, someone said there's only like five stories and you keep recycling them. So, you know, um, same thing with uh, techniques and we all borrow from each other. Uh, I, I study the cutting patterns of like um, different directors. I just saw um, the other night Oppenheimer and I loved the way that they would do um, 
you know, he'd be describing something and then you'd see it in flashes. And that, that's done a lot. And it's a really effective way of telling a story. So I, I enjoyed that. Jerry Lewis, you had as a mentor. That's true. You know, when we, when we heard that Jerry Lewis was coming to teach at USC, we thought it would be all jokes and, um, uh, you know, a comedy routine. But it turned out that, no, he, he when he was acting in all those movies, he uh, studied and asked questions and learned how to do every single job on a, on a production. He knew how to load a Nagra, how to, how to thread a projector, everything. And he taught us lots of stuff about two, two types of, three types of filmmakers. The one who knows about acting, the one who knows about technology, and then the total filmmaker, which combines both. And the, the audio of his class that we had at USC, he turned into a book, which he called The Total Filmmaker. And it's, it's something that many, many people use. I mean, I think Martin Scorsese has a copy that he, that on his, uh, that he keeps with him all the time. And then you, interv you interviewed him 50 years later. That's true. You know, I, I often do visual histories with the directors at the Directors Guild of America in Hollywood. We, we sit the director down for four hours and ask him about his career. And I've done it with Tony Bill and Carl Reiner, Jerry Lewis, Stephen Frears, um, Arthur Allen Seidelman. So, you know, it's fascinating. And you can find it at dga.org. And all those interviews, those four-hour interviews are there to, to see and learn from. And, you know, another thing about USC was that I studied with Nina Fosh, the, the actress who was in the Ten Commandments and Spartacus and um, uh, lots of other movies. Anyhow, she's taught for 40 years at USC and AFI and uh, taught many, many directors. And we made a, a her course. It's called the Nina Fosh Course for Filmmakers and Actors. And that's on um, Amazon. And uh, it's, it's a great place for anybody who wants to learn about directing or acting. And it's it's it's... I highly recommend that. You're originally from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. That's true. So when you, when you were a kid, was there a specific movie or an event that made you want to get into directing or acting or any of those? Absolutely. Yes, it was. Uh, when I was 10, I saw the Ten Commandments. And uh, at the beginning of the movie, Cecil B. DeMille comes out from behind the curtains and starts to talk to the audience and tells them about what they're about to see. And and I thought, who is this guy? And it turns out that that was the director. And then I learned that, okay, people make movies. They don't just show up in, somewhere. So that, that gave me the idea of wanting to follow in those footsteps and, and become a director. And your, your class, you're at USC, you know, famously called the Dirty Dozen. Yeah. Yes, we had um, Caleb Deschanel, George Lucas, John Milius, uh, Walter Murch. All of them sort of went into the industry and did great things. And so... Uh, it was an unusual group of people, and uh, yes, they call us the Dirty Dozen. Actually, it's the beginning of the USC Mafia. USC is known in the movie industry as the Mafia because people hire each other that went to USC. And so uh, it's a, a network, a kind of a network in the industry. Right. In comedy, it's the Harvard Mafia. Oh, is that right? Oh, interesting. I did not know that. Well, the Lampoon guys hire each other for jobs. Interesting. Wow. I learned something today. <laughs> you appeared in a lot of student films, including Captain America versus the Mutant. 
That's true, yes. I did, and I wore the, uh, I think it was the actual um, outfit that was used in the silent version of the serial. That somehow my friend Don Glute, who was one of my classmates, um, got a hold of that uniform, and I wore that, and then we had the, the head from this island Earth, the actual monster head from this island Earth, and he had somehow got all that, and we shot it in Griffith Park, in black and white, uh, 16 millimeter, and uh, it's, I don't know if it's available anywhere, but uh, it was pretty funny. You made a film that, Foot Fetish. Yes. Which was on the season premiere of season six of Saturday Night Live, Wow, you did your research, and well, it's com that's my show, and that's um, it got like the, the best reception of any sketch on that show that night. Wow, I remember uh, it was Elliot Gould who presented it, and uh, it was about two sneakers making love and and having a baby sneaker, and at the end of the clip, uh, the camera went to Elliot and he was sniffing a a shoe, <laughs> sniffing right. a, a sneaker. Yeah, I always I always remember that. It's really funny, mm -hmm. yeah. and there was stop motion, stop motion. And you know, I didn't really know what I was going to do that day. I went to the beach uh, with uh, Scott Scott Glenn's wife uh, Carol. We were just going to hang out at the beach and um, stopped to get some shoes. And I saw the biggest shoe and the smallest shoe, and I asked if I could borrow them. And we just went to the beach. I started fooling around, and it just came out. You know, the the whole. The whole thing I, it was not planned. It just happened, which was weird and fun. Yeah. And something that you did obviously plan was, was your student film, Peach. That's true. Yeah, that was about my grandmother in a nursing home at Christmas Day. And our family went to visit her, and it was hard to get through to her. And, uh, and then when my family left, I stayed behind and tried to connect with her, talked about the past. And then I left. And in the movie version, where, where Bruce Davison plays my part, at the very end of the movie, after all these people have come and talked at her, and, and I tried to talk to her, uh, uh, Bruce leaves the room, and at the end of the movie, there's a big close-up, and she smiles. So you get the idea that, that, uh, it, that all this um, connection did get through to her, and uh, even though it seemed like it didn't. And this movie was used um, a lot in the over the decades for training nurses and people dealing with old people because it, it talks about how I mean it sort of shows how you can connect through when people don't seem to be connecting. What I thought was interesting also is Bruce Davidson appears in a movie It's My Party tw about 25 years later and just like Robert Altman has a, or Mel Brooks has a, or Woody Allen has a group of actors that they use and they like to use in, in parts and movies. You have actors that you that you see again and again in your films. That's true. I mean, I have like um, Gregory Harrison was in North Shore, and in um, It's My Party, and also in The Gathering. Yes, I I, I love working with the same actors because you you get like a, a shorthand with them, and you know what they're going to do, and you know, and they know you, you know them, and and uh, uh, it's. Uh, it's, it's great to be able to have that connection with them. Yeah. When you graduated from film school, you started working on episodic TV, like Marcus Welby and the Young Doctors. Did uh, yeah, Marcus Welby, and that was the same show that I think that Steve 
um, Spielberg started his career with. It was on, that was his first job, I believe. And uh, yeah, they, they, it was a, a show that had been on the air for six years or something. And so they, they, when they had young directors coming up, they figured they couldn't screw it up because it was sort of ran by itself. But it's amazing when you see the the names there of people that directed one or you directed four episodes of the show. Yeah, yeah, four of those, and then I did the the rookies and Starsky and Hutch, and that was very very good training for a director to do episodic because you learn how to um, solve any problem that pops up, and you have to solve it because if you come in on uh, over budget or over schedule, you're dead. You never work again. So you have to learn all the tricks. And then that led to Dawn, Portrait of a Teenage Runaway. Yes. That was about a, uh, uh, a prostitute, a teen prostitute. And um, and then I did uh, The Boy in the Plastic Bubble with John Travolta. And he, he was a big star from Welcome Back, Cotter. Uh, and, and this was his first time being the lead in a movie in Boy in the Plastic Bubble. And we became good friends. And then when he later got a three-picture deal at Paramount, he asked for me to direct Grease. So that's how I got that movie. I had Joel Thurmond a couple oh, of months ago. Yeah, that must have been fun. He's he's very witty and funny, isn't he? Yeah, he's very funny. And yeah. yeah, he used words that not a lot of people on like a podcast have, but that's that's fine. Yeah. Yeah, I, I bossed him and said, Joel, how come you're so funny? How do I get to be funny? And he's, it's, I don't know. I can't. I can't be like him. He's, he's really great. It's a New York New York attitude. I think so. Yeah, the snarkiness. He's not afraid at, at this age. He's not afraid to say anything uh, nasty or snarky to anybody. There's always been a rumor that Henry Winkler was offered Greece. That's not true. Well, you know, it, not when I was involved with it. It could have been before John and I were involved. You know, when they were just talking about doing Greece, but. Once, once uh, Stigwood got involved and, and got and had the three picture deal with Travolta, that's when I came in. So I don't know about what happened before. Okay, it could be that he was talked about him. And Joel told me about how the script that you got was different than the script on Broadway, and you just waited. And Alan Carr was off, and you just used the actual script from the play from the movie. Well, yes, you know, um, I think. Um, it was a Broadway hit. Grease was a Broadway hit. And Alan and his writer, Bronte Woodard, were trying to improve on that. And, you know, it, it wasn't necessary to improve on it because it was already a hit. So we went back and, and just tried to go back to the original script. And I have a book out called um, Grease, the Director's Notebook, which has my script and all the notes in it where we took out things that didn't work and, uh, and went back to the play. So it's, it's kind of for anybody who wants to see how that process works, there it is. Want a movie to be a hit, but do you ever think that a movie is going to be such a major success? Like no, 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 nobody knew that. And everybody asked that question. But, you know, at that time, they were also doing Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, and Stigwood thought that was going to be the big hit. And um, at their casting crew party, they had champagne and lobster, and we had hot, hot dogs and hamburgers. So. You, you could see which one they thought was going to be the hit. I mean, it's Steve Martin and, and George Burns and uh, the Bee Gees. Yes, and Peter Frampton. Yeah, there was a, there was a big cast. And, uh, they, they, and, and plus the Beatles music. I mean, you know, you can't get any bigger than that, right? But What was it like 
um, directing people like Eve Arden and yeah, Sid Caesar, all those people. Yeah, I grew up watching them on TV, and so it was a thrill, a real thrill for me to work with them. And and Eve Arden uh, and and Olivia Newton-John are both exactly the way we're both exactly the way you imagine them. Their on-screen persona was exactly like them off-screen, and and uh, the joy to work with. Uh, Sid Caesar was a little more serious, uh, but uh, he was very good at improv. That whole sequence with John and him, with the um, where he's teaching him how to be a jock, that was all improvised. We I just set, gave them the setup, and then they just went with it. And, all and you did a great job making the world's oldest teenagers. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, a lot of them were on the Broadway stage doing the show, and I, I knew that they had seen where all the laughs were. They knew what worked, uh, how, to, how to do the timing. And so I really wanted to work with the people who had been around that play. And, and also, um, you know, there weren't really any young up-and-coming kids that had that comedy timing. And so it was more important to have the, the, the movie work than have it be realistic. Right. And I'm a big fan of the TV series Taxi. And oh, yeah. Jeff Conaway is just great in both. Right. And you, and you see the talent that he had. Yeah. He was he was a uh, he was a little depressed by the fact that his big number was taken away. He was originally supposed to sing Grease Lightning. And um, because John was such a big star and had just done Saturday Night Fever and was, you know, blasting onto the world stage, uh, we had to take that song away from Jeff and give it to John. And, uh, but he got over it. Uh, actually, when we were shooting that, that number, Jeff um, injured himself. He was, when he, you can see it on the film, he, he falls back onto the car and lands on his back. And, and, and that started a whole period of um, painkillers, which I think eventually brought him down. You know? Wow. Yeah. That's what happened with um, Matthew Perry playing tennis. Oh, yeah? And he hurt his back. Uh-huh. And Jerry Lewis, from all his, his falls, you know, he had he got into painkillers, too. Yeah. And Chevy, Chevy Chase as well. Uh, yeah, yeah. Can't do that. I know, but at the time, doctor doctor prescribed it. To yeah. you. And you did The Blue Lagoon, which was your second film, and it was a box office success. Yeah, that was that was a thrill because it was a movie that I really wanted to make. I had read the book that was written in 1890 something uh, by an English writer, and um, you know it was kind of like Robinson Crusoe or Swiss Family Robinson, and but it had sex in it, so <laughs> it seemed like a good combination. And uh, uh, it was turned down by every studio, um, and I went around and round and round with it, trying to find somebody who. Back at and finally Frank Price at, at um, Columbia gave it the go ahead because he was the guy who originally saw my student film Peach and got me started at Universal on Marcus Welby. So it was a, a complete circle. I owe my whole career to Frank Price. So Greece didn't let you have a project and then just do it? Nope. Uh, you'd think it would, but uh, no. Actually, Hardly anybody knew that I did Reese because Alan Carr was uh, was uh, you know doing all the talk shows and it was called Alan Carr's Grease and and uh, he you know I, I didn't 
appear anywhere really. So people didn't even know about me uh, at that time. But luckily I got Blue Lagoon off the ground and that kind of got things rolling. And what was Brooke Shields like to work with? Well, you know, she was 14 at the time and uh, she, was, she was lovely to work with. Uh, she had, uh, of course, done Pretty Baby. And um, so she knew about filmmaking. She knew about, you know, how you how you play to the camera and stuff. Chris Atkins had never been on a set before. He was like a babe in the woods. And and so I, uh, I had to sort of tell him about, you know, how you play, a, play to the camera. And um, the two of them, I wanted them to create a kind of a chemistry and and because that was critical, if if they didn't, if it didn't look like they had anything going, the movie would die because they're the only two people in it. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I was careful to keep other young people off the island where we filmed. We filmed in a, a island with no roads or electricity or or even water. Uh, <laughs> we we all camped out in tents and uh, stone huts. And uh, it was a real adventure. I don't think there will ever be a movie made quite like that again. You know, I, I got a, uh, I interviewed an Australian crew, and I and when I interviewed each member, I said, "Have you, you camped? You go out camping?" And if they said yes, then they got the, the, the job. And if they didn't, then we we knew that they were people who would be complaining a lot. Right. And but but Chris Atkins and Brooke Shields did not complain. Well, no, I mean, they were, I think they were excited by doing this kind of a, uh, an adventure because we were with uh, dolphins and we were with uh, sharks were around, uh, it, 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 snorkeling, underwater shooting. It was, it was a, a real adventure. It was a lot of fun making Blue Lagoon because it was like a, I don't know, like a summer camp type of thing. And uh, the whole crew was really supportive and we, we became a big family and we we had an outdoor screening room where, like a drive-in except it was just you know, a, a palm palm blade with grass and we'd sit on blankets and watch the dailies and we'd fly in movies and watch them together so it was it was a real super adventure with summer lovers you wrote the script as well as directed yes um i had uh, when i was doing the publicity for blue lagoon one of the interviewers told me he had just gotten back from uh, Santorini and uh, was telling me about it. And so there are all these young people from around the world who were all running around on naked beaches. And uh, I said, well, I think I'll go check that out. <laughs> so, so I went over there uh, right after I finished the publicity tour. And um, sure enough, uh, it, it was just the perfect place to set a movie. And, uh, it was at the end of the 70s before AIDS and people were having wonderful love affairs with, you know, a week long love affairs and uh, switching partners and all that stuff. So it seemed like the perfect place to write a story. And, and I, I so I came up with a plot for Summer Lovers and then uh, was able to launch that. I, lo I love the line, uh, jealousy doesn't show you how much you love someone, it shows you how insecure you are. That was from Margaret Mead. So, uh, yeah, I didn't write that. <laughs> I just quoted her. <laughs> but I didn't believe that. Yeah, it, it basically, for me, that movie's about jealousy. 
Mm-hmm. Most movies are, uh, most triangles are about jealousy, and I, I just think it's fun to see one that's not about that. Well, Jules and Jim, I guess, was sort of like that. And then you made a movie that p- people of my generation, and I heard uh, to prepare, I wanted to make sure I tried not to ask you questions you've always been asked. But, Thank you. <laughs> um, but I have to ask you, Flight of the Navigator, I was nine years old when it came out, and people of my generation, it's one of our favorite movies. <laughs> Do you have a brother? I have a younger brother, two younger brothers. So then you could identify with the switch, right? That when the younger brother becomes the older brother. That, yeah. That's what I figured, that most most people, most young guys who saw that who have a brother, they go, oh, what would it be like if my brother was older and he treated me that way? You know, that, that's what I, I think always happens when, when people watch movies, they identify with the character. And so that, that's one of the things that I thought would happen. And I get that a lot from people your age who say that they remember that movie fondly. And of course, we just lost Paul Rubens, who right. was the voice of Max. And, um, you know, he didn't want to have his name on it. He wanted it to be a surprise that he, he did it. And so he even put his name at the, in the end credits. He, he had Paul Mall as his name. So he didn't, uh, so no one supposedly knew it was him. But the moment he laughed, of course, everyone knew. Right. The kids, kids, I don't think knew. I didn't know at that time. Oh, yeah? When I watched it, I didn't know it was him. You didn't watch PB's Playhouse? Oh, no, I did. So you didn't recognize that vo- that laugh? Huh. It's been, I don't know, it's probably just one of those things where they just didn't put two and two together. I see. Okay. I, I saw Pee Wee's Big Adventure in the theaters. I saw Big Top Pee Wee in the theaters. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> so I was a well, big fan of Pee Wee Herman uh, and yeah. Paul, Paul Rubens. Me too. I, I really, really miss him. And, uh, you know, just last month, he sent me... Um, a birthday greeting and um, uh, joked around and uh, you know I said hey I just turned 77 he said you don't look a day over 76 and three quarters <laughs> I heard that birthday uh, messages was like his thing yes he sent me 10 uh, different gifts of um, the, the Muppets for my birthday and the same thing happened with Gregory Harrison. My, my friend Gregory Harrison got 10 of them too last, last month. And then poof, suddenly he died. And we, we didn't even know he was sick. And so till the end, he kept, he kept up his birthday greetings. Yes, it's, I read that. And I read the uh, He put out a, a statement. Oh, they had a statement mm-hmm. with them. Where, where did you find, this is like one of the first crushes I had, Valeria Galino. Well, uh, we knew that we needed a beautiful Italian for that part. So we, we wrote to um, an agent in, um, in Rome and said, please send us uh, uh, video or photos, I guess, photos of your top beautiful girls. And, and Valeria was one of them. And we hired her without meeting her. And, and when I went down to the airport to pick her up, I was terrified that she was going to, you know, not look like a picture or not, you know. We didn't, we didn't even test her. We just hired her from the photo. That's crazy I, when you think of it now. Because today, of course, you can have a video test and send it to the Internet and everything. But back then, you couldn't. So it was just a big gamble. But it paid off. And she went on to do that movie with uh, Dustin Hoffman and Tom Cruise. What was that called? Um, Raymond? 
Rain Man, yeah, right after Big Top Pee Wee. So she landed on her feet. And then she did one of those the Zucker Brothers comedies also. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she was fun to work with. I haven't seen her since. Uh, have, have you seen other movies she's done? I, no, no I, I know those three. And then hmm. maybe, she went, maybe she went back to Italy to work. You know? Yeah, I'd love to see her again. And then when I was funny, when I was in eighth grade, I had to read White Fang. And White, uh, and White Fang comes out in the theaters. Well, did you think it fit the the this this was it a good adaption? It was a good adaption, yeah. It it, it was not I'm sorry? And and was it a good adaptation? It, right? it was a good adaptation because um you still had to read the book. You couldn't watch the movie and pass right. the test, but but it made the book easier to read, if that makes any sense too. Because you can picture the things now. Well, the book was written from the point of view of the wolf, as I recall. It, it was really, it was talking like you are the wolf. And it was talking about the God, which was the man. And so we had to find a way to in, involve, as a screenplay, actors into it. And so the thought was to come up with the idea that the leading role, which was Ethan Hawke, was the character Jack London, who actually did go to the gold rush territory and um, explored that. And we, we told the story like as if it was following Jack London and the things that he saw are the things that he wrote about for, for Call of the Wild and, and um, White Fang. And so that was the, the idea that we did. And I thought it worked pretty well. I think it holds up pretty well too. Yeah, I always liked that movie. Mm -hmm. did, honey, I blew up the kid. Yeah. Well, that one, um, you know, I, I didn't want to do a sequel, uh, but uh, I was told by um, the studio that if I did that movie, they'd let me do an adult film. And uh, so I did it. And then they all left. <laughs> I didn't get to do the adult film. But uh, it was fun because I've always liked Godzilla movies and, and, and the idea of a, a hundred foot tall baby walking through Vegas with people screaming and running from him appealed to me. I, I thought that was fun. I got, I got a chance to try special effects for the first time. Well, early, the beginnings of special effects. And, um, and I got to also do something that I really, really loved, which is forced perspective, which I had seen in um, Darby O'Gill and the Little People. Do you remember that movie? I've heard of it. Yeah, well, it's worth seeing because they have some of the best forced perspective where this man is, uh, uh, the leprechauns are all done by putting people far away from the camera and the guy is in the foreground, but the sets are beautifully constructed so that there's, they're seamless. And I wanted to do that with Honey, I Blew Up the Kid. So we built sets where the ba baby could be in the foreground and the people could be in the background. It, it's much better than any, any visual effects or CGI or anything because it's all real. It looks very And what was it like working with uh, Rick Moranis? Well, Rick was a fantastic uh, improviser, improviser, and especially when we had a two-year-old as his co-star, because uh, Rick had kids and he knew how to talk to them. And so a lot of the scenes with the kid were made up by Rick. He just, uh, we, I'd set up the situation and then he'd just go with it. Like, for instance, there's a scene where they're in front of a microwave and, and that whole sequence goes for about, I, I guess about, half a minute and it's all made up uh, by Rick 
and the kid. And then you did a film, It's My Party. And yeah. was that hard to make? Yes, it was, because it's based on uh, some real events that happened um, during the AIDS crisis. There, it was a death sentence if you got AIDS. There was no cure. There was no, no, no medication, nothing. You just would die if you got it. And especially if you got a certain disease called PML, uh, progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy, which is a brain disease that would turn you into a vegetable within a few days when you got it. So um, this this um, this person got it and um, decided to say goodbye to all his friends and have a party and then take his life so he wouldn't become a vegetable. And I made a movie about that and I interviewed all the people who were at the actual party and and uh, wrote the script, sent it around, and all my friends came to help me make the movie and worked for, for nothing. You know, Olivia and John was in it, uh, George Siegel, Le Le Leo Grant, um, Bruce Davison came back, uh, Gregory Harrison. So all my, my friends came to help me make that movie. And it was a very tough, very emotional journey, but uh, I, I'm glad I did it. And it's kind of like very expensive therapy. Yeah, I can just imagine it was tough to make for the for the people to make it and tough to get it made at the same time. Exactly. Well, that was the movie that I wanted to do at Disney. <laughs> and they took one look at it and they went, what? <laughs> no way. <laughs> you know, after Honey, I Blew Up the Kid, they were not, not going to make It's My Party. So I, I got to do it at uh, MGMUA from the wonderful executive John Calley, who used to run Warner Brothers, a very classy man. And he, he gave me the green light in the office when I brought him the, the, the pictures from the party. So that was a wonderful, wonderful experience to, to get support like that. You're still working today and, and you're a member of the Directors Guild board. Mm -hmm. not, not right now, but I have been for, for, for years, yeah. Right now I'm, I'm about to do Digital Day at the Directors Guild where for 20 years I've been programming this one day that we have where we show all the tech, new tech, new tech to the directors, and that's coming up. And I'm also prepping a movie right now that I'm going to shoot in um, in uh, early next year. So that's yeah, I'm staying really busy. I've got also got a, a documentary coming out called Baby Boomer Yearbook. Mm -hmm. We don't know exactly where that's going to end up, but it's we're about to place that, and that's kind of like uh, did you ever see Michael Apted's Seven Up? series yes i have yeah this is sort of an american version of that my high school uh was uh I, every 10 years i interviewed my classmates in the position of their yearbook photo and uh so it's over the years you see them get older and and there's the jock the prom queen the class clown the things that people can identify with in their high school and, and see them change and grow up and yourself you're you're in it as well well, barely. I mean, I, I, I just sort of narrate it. I, um, and I talk about, you know, how the characters in Greece kind of were, were typical high school students. And, and every high school has the same characters. You know, they're, they're all, every class has the same group. What, what would you have considered yourself in high school? Hmm. Well, <clears throat> probably Putsy, who was kind of like in the background. Not not doing, not not a type A kind of like a quiet guy. I was making movies when I was in high school, and nobody else was doing that. Um, 
I was kind of thought of as a nerd. I guess. So, so you were watching all the people that you're making the movie about now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's good. It, yeah. it worked out. It did. I was the editor of the of my yearbook, so I wrote about everybody, sort of like obs observing them. And same as you know, the, my book, drawing directors, observing the directors. So I thought a lot of times I've stayed back and just watched and, and analyzed and, and written about. People. So you've been chronicling them every 10 years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we have another, the, the, the 60th is coming up this next year. So we may do a follow-up on it. I, I, if I get some backing on that, I have to see. So were you well known the first time? What's that? When the first time you did it, the 10-year reunion. Oh. Were you, were you, were well, you? yes. They all knew me because I was the editor of the yearbook. And so... Uh, yeah, I just said, "Hey, uh, come sit in." And, they, and I, by then, I had been doing some TV work, so they knew that I was uh, in Los Angeles doing um, media, and so they all cooperated. Right, because by the time Greece comes out, oh yeah, I'll do that, no problem. Yes, that's right. That's right. They did. <laughs> Where do you see the directors, directors going with the other two um, professions on strike? Um. Well. It's a really strange time in the industry right now because I think the biggest change is AI and how that's going to affect going forward. You know, how will that be harnessed? How will it? How will people be able to continue their work? How how can they adapt and uh, use it rather than have it take away jobs? That's what everyone's talking about right now. Um, what do you do to to control this? this gigantic change in the industry because uh, it, it's suddenly bl blown up. Um, when you see what it can do, it's extraordinary. It's just amazing stuff. So It reminds me of Carl Reiner's Dead Men Don't Wear a Plaid. How is that? I don't remember that story. That was a, it was a Steve Martin movie, and every other p person in the movie between besides him I think it was Seal Award, were 1940s, were from 1940s movies. So it was like Humphrey Bogart and all these other people, and he would he would talk, and then they almost like Zelig, and then they would cut cut to. I remember it now. Yes, he used stock footage, and then he staged to it. Right? Yeah, I get it. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, that that was funny. Yeah. You know, Carl was one of the people that I interviewed for the director's. Mm -hmm. Four hours of sitting with him was a lot of fun. Yeah, he's a, he was a very funny guy and v very talented actor, director, everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he tells a story in, the, in in my interview with him where about a guy who was supposed to be saying um, suicide, the word suicide, and um, Carl. It's a very funny story. I can't I can't even begin to do it like he did it, but it's it's worth catching. At dga.org. I will listen to that. Okay. Watch it. Well, thank you for doing this. Yes, my pleasure. Very nice to talk to you, Ian, and uh, good luck with everything. Thank you, and have a good day and get to where you have to go. Okay, thanks. Okay. Great. Bye.